Hello, and welcome to this 12th episode of the Eurocast, where a bunch of unqualified political scientists at the University of Oxford discuss politics, elections, ideas, and whatever makes Europe, or in this case America, tick. I'm your host, Nick James, and I'm joined by Marco Pastor Mayo and Leo Carella. The Eurocast has no official sponsor except for listeners like you, so please support us and our work on Patreon and follow us on Twitter, at Eurocast underscore Ox. You can also find us on our website, EurocastOx.com. This episode will have two segments. The first one will be on the Democratic primaries and the second one on the Labour leadership election. Um, Just a bit of housekeeping to start with. First of all, um, we are recording on Tuesday uh, about 1 UK time, so we don't really have Iowa um, results for, for reasons that will be explained later. Um, so, um, we're working with hypotheticals right now and probably whatever we say will be contradicted within hours. Second thing is, you know, the elephant in the room, this is Eurocast and why are you talking about American politics? Because this is our show and not yours. Um, and so let's go on to our guests. So... Um, first of all, we're joined by Rob Ford, who is a professor at the University of Manchester, has written extensively on British politics and has an interest in American politics as well. Hi, Rob. Hello. Um, so if we can do a little plug, um, his book, Brexit Land, is upcoming and he's also working on the latest installments of the Nuffield series, which has basically been dealing with... Um, UK election since 1945. And then uh, we're also joined on the American side by Denise Barron, who um, has worked as a, um, a strategist for the Democratic Party, and she's currently doing her PhD in the London School of Economics, so she covers all the bases. And hi, hi Denise. Hello. And she's also, also for like shameless plugs, um, she's the co-host of um, the, Bolka, the Ballpark podcast with the US Center at LSE. So let's start from um, what happened yesterday. Why yeah. don't we have any results of the Iowa caucus? <laughs> Denise, do you want to take that? Yeah, so so I'll, just to just to get started with what we would expect normally to happen. Um, so obviously, this is the first time in the 2010, 2020 Democratic primary when voters are actually turning up somewhere, and we'll get to, to where they're turning up, um, to voice their actual support uh, in the form of, of a caucus for particular candidates. And I, for one, have been saying for the last few weeks that this election has definitely reached the point where we need to start seeing some actual votes in the columns. It is a a long, long process in the U.S. of selecting a uh, presidential nominee from either party. This has been going on for over a year with certain candidates um, and, and very, very much in a structured, formal way for, for a year, absolutely, with, with many candidates, with most of them who, who are currently viable in the field. So it, this is a really, really long process. And for a lot of people like myself, who I'm you know, obviously an active uh, participant in, in the democratic process in the US, but for people who are just, who are just observers and who are just, you know, just voters, I mean, these poor people who live in Iowa, right? And so this is a, a huge, huge sort of um, climactic moment for presidential campaigns. It's only happened, obviously, once every four years. And so for us at this point to have literally 0% reporting, if you Google right now Iowa caucus results, you get 0% reported. It is an absolutely, um, uh, I almost cussed, so please do forgive me if I swear on exit. It's such an unprecedented moment <laughs> that that it's such a bizarre thing for us to be talking about at the moment. Uh, Nate Silver, everyone's favorite, you know, kind of poll aggregator and prognosticator, um, turned pundit type of person for, you know, or I'd say polling advocate. Uh, he, he wrote something that was something like 89 potential things that could happen in the Iowa caucus. This is not included could have happened in all of those potential outcomes. So, so that's just to sort of hit the, hit the sort of narrative of this crescendo that we've reached that is not necessarily happening. 
um, in a in a much more nuts and bolts type of uh, report of, of what we've not seen coming out of Iowa is um, we don't have some basic results because the reporting structures from the caucuses to the the central the central party the central entity that is then reporting the result that has broken down and we're still in the phase like you said we're, we're recording around 1 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on on uh, on Tuesday uh, at at this point there's a lot of finger pointing there's a lot of blame that's going around. The, the Iowa Democratic Party has put out a statement, and I have that pulled up if you want me to read that. Is that a helpful thing to sort of base a little part of the next conversation on? Yep, sure. So, so it basically says, we found inconsistencies in the reporting of three sets of results. In addition to the text systems being used to tabulate results, we also were using photos of results and a paper trail to validate that all results match and ensure that we have confidence and accuracy in the numbers we report. This is simply a reporting issue. The app did not go down, and this is not a hack or an intrusion. The underlying data and paper trail is sound, and we will simply take time to further report the results. So there is a lot going on in that statement. First of all, there is a, a, a hint there um, that at, at what is a, a fundamental fear, I think, in American elections at the moment and some more global elections. It mentions that this is not a hack. So there have been investigations in specific places in the US, particularly there was one in South Carolina that, that took many years to establish whether or not an outside entity had hacked into the voting machines and the voting systems. This is obviously a very, uh, I don't want to say emotional in a bad way, but I'm, I'm, I'd say emotionally in a very important way, issue of whether or not there are outside entities interfering in American elections and to what degree are they actually interfering on the, the tabulation of votes. I mean, that is the ultimate interference, isn't it? It's a hacking of the voting system. So the, the Iowa Democratic Party had developed an app that would allow each of the caucuses to report the each wave of uh, of their alignments, each wave of of caucusing. Um, caucuses are obviously not a incredibly traditional voting system. They're something that takes a sort. It's it's a very social and iterative process. If we were to go into some more like social science language about it, but basically people get together and in person they they state who their supporters are. Um, and those candidates with, or, I'm sorry, they state who they're supporting and those candidates with really low level of support. So under 15% in the first, um, in the first caucus and first wave of it, then they are either asked to realign with another candidate or they can leave. I mean, they can, they can take themselves, they can take their vote out of the, the process of the caucus. And then this goes on for a couple stages until there is a, a result at the end, which is reported back to the, the primary party. And it's this reporting that appears to have broken down. I just wanted to point out that there is an email that's been going around by Jeff Weaver, uh, the leader of, or the campaign manager of Bernie Sanders, where they released their internal polling results of about 40% of the precincts. And of course, we should take this with a grain of salt, uh, but they do give a rough estimation of where the race might be in terms of Iowa. And, and it's, Sanders takes the lead with 30%. I don't, I don't think you can make any kind of inference from a 40% sample that's being leaked by a campaign. Uh, you know, the, you don't know what 40% that is. And of course, they're going to pick the numbers that look most advantageous to them in an information environment where we know nothing uh, at all. I mean, it's win-win for Sanders. Uh, you know, if that information goes out and it proves to be false, they'll claim there was some kind of, you know, conspiracy uh, at work, and that just muddies the whole information environment further, which is fine by Bernie. If it turns out to be true, then they, they try and get an early media narrative going about Sanders winning I Iowa. So given the fact that they have nothing to lose if the information turns out to be inaccurate, it's another reason not to take the information very seriously. And also the, the Buttigieg campaign has, has put out similar information, said that they've, they have reports from 77% of their precinct captains um, that obviously show that they're winning as well. So it, it, is, a, it is a real mess. 
um, a real cluster <laughs> of a sort. They're, they're at a certain point last night, uh, you know, in, in the wee hours of the morning, which which the American political establishment is not used to being up late for elections, I'll mention, which is very different to those of us uh, in the UK working on elections over here. At this point, a bunch of precinct captains were tweeting out pictures of their tallying and tagging reporters in it. There were a couple ent- uh, a couple people, I think a couple of reporters and academics who set up a Google Doc as sort of a, oh, an open source way to, to tabulate results. I mean, it has gone into a total like uh, free style of, of tabulation. Um, the thing I will say that is that is clearly admirable, uh, the one thing, the one, the one positive thing I'll say about the Iowa Democratic Party is that they they take this so seriously. They take this responsibility absolutely seriously. It is their life's calling. They do this. They, they really carry on their shoulders the mantle of American democracy. They understand how important this is. And their reasons for not announcing it uh, are going to come from the right place of wanting to be accurate and transparent. They, they, they developed this new app and this new reporting system in the spirit of being as transparent as possible. Because in 2016, the, uh, the ultimate margin between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton was the smallest that the Democratic uh, primary has ever seen. And so there were, there were a lot of conspiracies theory, conspiracy theories that spun out of that. And on the Republican side in 2012, between Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, it took a few days for the results to come out because they were so close. They, they do take this responsibility very, very seriously, and they want to, nothing more than to be accurate, fair, and democratic. And an interesting thing that came out from the reactions of the candidates is sort of how you could infer where they thought they were in the race based on how... Uh, they gave their speeches, their thank you speeches and goodbye speeches, where Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg were obviously very elated with the results. And then Elizabeth Warren was saying, oh, it's been very close. And Joe Biden was like, kind of, ah, who cares about this anyway? <laughs> yeah, that kind of uh, uh, laid back attitude. So I think that reflects what they think has happened. Yeah, I would like to bring Robin on this in, in the sense that let's try and analyze the only result we have, which is a non-result. So who benefits? from, you know, the having dodged Iowa. So people who might have not done as well or people who may benefit from this kind of attention shifting over to New Hampshire. So how do you think that this Iowa uh, debacle affects the narrative going forward and the candidates' prospects? Yeah, well, I mean... I was very small. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the actual number of delegates it allocates, it shouldn't have a very big impact on the result. But of course, the Americans have this peculiar and for politics watchers very fun uh, system of sequential primaries, uh, which means that the influence of the early states, which of course the early states themselves are well aware of, is disproportional um, because they send a signal uh, which then influences how voters behave uh, in subsequent races. Uh, So while I agree with Denise that the Iowa Democratic Party's intentions are very noble ones, the net effect of those noble intentions is largely to nullify uh, the impact of their state uh, on the process, or certainly to to considerably reduce it, uh, for two reasons. First of all, we don't have a signal yet, uh, and that that wastes a lot of time uh, where candidates could have been getting uh, a boost. And that time is precious, given that it's only six days now, uh, I think, until New Hampshire. Uh, And secondly, uh, the way that signal works is through the influence it has on media narratives about who's viable and who isn't, who's quote-unquote a winner, uh, who's uh, got a boost out of Iowa even if they haven't won, who's the unexpected surging candidate and so forth. There is no narrative to that effect. And given that the process seems to have been something of an omni-shambles, there's a good chance there never will be a narrative like that because the whole narrative will become a process narrative. It'll be entirely 
about how and why uh, the Iowa Democratic Party screwed this up so badly, and then a series of competing arguments by several different candidates uh, looking to slice the results in ways that are favorable to them. Uh, so the, the likely net effect, I think, is to reduce the impact of Iowa on the process, and therefore the knock-on effect of that is to hurt the prospects of any candidate who was relying on a good result from Iowa, which to my mind is primarily, um, is it Buddha Judge? Is that the right pronunciation? Yeah. I've been struggling yeah. with this. Is it yeah. Buddha Judge, Buddha Judge. Okay, so he was obviously like staking a lot uh, on Iowa. So was Klobuchar, uh, and so was Sanders. Um, the big winner from all of this is probably Biden, because as you've noted, he looks to have had a pretty terrible night in Iowa. Um, but there's a good chance that nobody will pay so much attention to that, uh, and he can focus on trying to get through in reasonable shape to South Carolina, uh, where his numbers look a great deal stronger than they do in either of the first two states. Although ironically, uh, which would benefit Bernie Sanders, is the fact that New Hampshire is a very advantageous state for him, and he's expected to win fairly yeah, big. I agree with uh, that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And of course, now the New Hampshire bump is probably going to be exacerbated. It's going to be or accentuated because now the Iowa bump is. Uh, been dissipated. Well, I guess the other thing is that Iowa normally results in some candidates dropping out. I think like someone, at, at least one person has dropped out after the Iowa caucus pretty much every time that, that I can remember. There's a good chance nobody drops out now because everybody sees an interest uh, in keeping this argument going at least until uh, New Hampshire. Uh, and that means probably a bigger sort of fragmentation in the field uh, going forward, at least for a little while. Uh, and that, I guess, again, probably benefits those who are uh, up at the front in the field right now, so Biden and Sanders, because if you're below that first tier, you really want the field to consolidate quickly, so you've got a chance to stay viable. So given that what we have on Iowa is, well, basically what we have, um, maybe let's... Um, start a conversation on more generally on the democratic primaries. And one thing I wanted to ask both of you, maybe, maybe we can go um, rob the knees on this in turn. Um, so on the whole idea of electability. So obviously, the, one of the top priorities for Democrats is to beat Trump. Um, but in political science, we have this claim that, you, you, you know, this Downsian spatial um, model whereby the, the closest you are to the centre, the, the, the more likely you are to um, take away votes from your opponent. Um, in what sense is that electability argument still valid um, for um, the democratic primaries, and in that sense, someone like Biden could, or could, like Buttigieg could claim electability, or has that um, whole model broken, as we saw with Hillary Clinton um, in the past primaries that turned out not to be a very strong candidate. What does electability mean um, in 2020 America? Well, I mean, I, th I think there have always been a number of problems with that kind of electability um, model uh, in in a polarized partisan environment because how extreme candidates are seen is not actually exogenous to people's partisanship, number one. So Hillary Clinton was seen as extreme by Republican voters, even though in policy terms uh, she wasn't particularly. Um, and number two, it's just not unidimensional. It probably never was unidimensional in any kind of meaningful sense. Um, and I'm not even sure that the term is being used in that traditional, you know, center ground of traditional left-right economic ideology sense anyway. Uh, it tends to be used these days, particularly with regards to Biden, in a kind of looser sense of, well, we lost all these older white working class men. Joe Biden is an older white man who grew up in Scranton and can tell lots of great hard scrabble stories. So it's not really electability in terms of ideology anyway. It's electability in terms of, you know, some sort of representational slash idea, you know, identity um, politics. Um, and, you know, I can see the surface plausibility of that argument, but I don't really think when you look at how Trump went about building his uh, winning electoral coalition that, that 
any traditional sense of electability provides a particularly meaningful account of how he went about doing that. Um, so I, I fear it's like one of those arguments that's not even false. It's like unfalsifiable. It's so vague that you can make it sound kind of plausible. But then when you look closely at it, it's like, well, how does this even work? I mean, what does it mean to say Joe Biden is more electable than Bernie Sanders or than Elizabeth Warren uh, beyond saying he seems to have an incremental advantage uh, in general election matchups against Trump in the key states right now, much of which is basically endogenous to his higher name ID anyway? So I think that there's something else going on with that. The idea of electability then then is sort of traditionally understood in in academic research. So there's there's been a a report of some qualitative uh, work done, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then also um, another kind of smaller sample in in other parts of the country that a, a polling firm who I used to work for has put out. And and basically what they were highlighting is is that it might be while the media narrative is that there's this understanding of like who is the best person situated to beat Trump, that's sort of the way that reporters and particularly the chattering class are talking about it. When it comes down to the way that voters are articulating it, it comes down to a little bit more of uh, how they see particular other voters or other groups of voters as key decision makers. So they, they sort of want to benchmark what they're going to do in reference to another group. And to put this in more concrete terms, um, that someone who who's really you know they they are very much focused on beating Trump. That's their that's a big primary concern to them. Then they think about well, what does that sort of Rust Belt voter, that town in in um, Pennsylvania or in Ohio, you know, what do which candidate is going to be able to speak to those people the best? That it's sort of that level of um, a more relational type of. Um, vote choice process going on. It's a little bit more about who do they think are the key voters that are going to decide this and sway this? Whose whose opinions do I see in the community of voters that I'm on generally the same side of or want to be on the same side of? How are they going to respond to different candidates? And I actually think that there are a lot of parallels between um, that kind of that that vote choice process that's I'd say is pretty understudied and the uh, labor leadership election that's going on right now. There's so much talk. Um, A lot of people have even used the term the fetishization of the North. There's this sense of, well, which of these candidates is going to be most appealing to the the, the voters of the old red wall that have left us now? How can we win them back? What is, what, how do, who do I vote for in order to satisfy their, um, their vote choice needs? And that that seems to be one of the more underlying factors of this electorability question that's going on, because the the general spectrum of this primary has shaken out to be who can win, who's the best bet to beat Trump on one side. Now, on the other side, who is the best place to who has the best ideas to make some real fundamental, massive structural change to to the society? And voters are falling in between that and instead of and it's kind of coming down to a more communal sense of vote vote decision making and a more idealistic, individualistic sense of vote decision making. I think that's really interesting because it suggests that the electability debate is kind of a Keynesian beauty contest. It's like that famous thought experiment Keynes did where there's, uh, you know, you win a prize if you successfully identify the woman that most other people will consider to be the most beautiful woman. Obviously, Keynes was writing in the 30s, so it's a very sexist uh, thought experiment. Uh, uh, And what Keynes realized is that it's an iterative game. You don't think go for the one you think is the most good looking. You go for the your estimate of where you think most other people's estimates of beauty will land. Um, so, you know, you don't go for the most electable candidate. Like Denise says, you go for the candidate that you think will be most attractive to the key groups of voters, similar in the Labour contest. I guess the problem I have with that line of argument is I think that people's 
ability to estimate other people's preferences is really very weak indeed. So it strikes me that that is a process of thinking, which I can completely understand how it gets going. But I wonder whether or not it actually delivers the results people want it to, because I don't think people are very good uh, at estimating uh, the likely preferences or reactions of, of other people. Um, so if they go down that particular rabbit hole, it may lead them, you know, there's a lot of noise in that process and not much signal. I, I would have absolutely been on that exact same side until till very recently. I saw a colleague of mine at, at LSE, he's um, also a PhD student, has did an experiment essentially to to prove that right, um, more in the UK context, that, but is potentially running in the US. And, and he was looking at whether or not people could correctly identify whether uh, how how respondents in the BES voted in the um, in the Brexit referendum in 2016 based on a handful of mostly demographic I think almost exclusively demographic uh, and partisan uh, factors and basically he expected people to be fairly incorrect just to be using these sort of uh, heuristics or stereotypes, which proved to be relatively inaccurate. And actually he's seen that people are really accurate and that we, and this sort of, it reinforces another side of, you know, reinforces the other side of the debate that like on one side, you say we're, we're very irrational actors. We're much more, um, focused on like, you know, we're not very good at predicting our own emotional reactions. We're not very good at predicting our own behavior. On the other side of that argument is that we're actually very finely tuned social entities that take in a ton of information about people and take in a ton of information about our, our group identities and our group such our intergroup uh, scenarios in order to then make very complex judgments from small amounts of information. And so, so I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I would come on the side of like I, I really don't know whether or not people do have a very good or accurate ability to assess which candidates are going to appeal to which type of people they have in their mind. But the thing I would say is that it's not as simple that uh, that voters are, are trying to pick who is going to beat Trump. They're, they're trying to pick the person who um, is also sort of resolving a little bit of discord and disunity within their, their partisan group. They're trying to, to move more closely to the other people who they want to be within their within their partisan group, but who they feel like they have potentially lost. Which is and if I could if I could add something very quick, I think in a lot of cases people vote for what they think other people want in these candidates. So a lot of Elizabeth Warren supporters will create a narrative that she's the best one to be Trump, and the people do the same with Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, and everyone has their own story that they tell about why they're the best candidate to beat them. So I think it is there's it's a case of reverse causality. You think they're the best one because you like them, not the mm -hmm. other way around. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it too, definitely. Except for the fact that in terms of Joe Biden supporters, there's a, a, a wide, there's a lot of people self-reporting as not agreeing with him on a number of issues or not even knowing anything about his issues. That might be because he is um, generally the front runner among or especially among uh, low in, low engagement voters, so they just are less likely to be able to point to any sort of policy position on, for for anyone. But uh, um, but then he at the same time they're they're picking him. Their their number one definite reported uh, element of why they're voting for him is in order to beat someone else. So I don't think it's as simple. Uh, I think that there are different types of processes and mechanisms in in place for different groups of the electorate. And since the Democratic primary electorate is so big and is so much bigger than the than other um, sort of comparable electoral processes here in the UK, it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, so to kind of wade us out of the deep end here, I thought we could shift parallel to um, sort of electability, but um, not different nominees and uh, relationships to the Democratic Party elite. So according to Morning Consult, the second choice of most of the supporters of Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren is Sanders, suggesting that he has a lot of room to grow his coalition. So do you think that if Sanders is the eventual uh, nominee, then the Democratic leaders will rally behind him or will they remain lukewarm like the Republicans were with Trump in 2016 uh, until he won? 
Well, lukewarm during which period? The sort of uh, intervening period between Sanders becoming front runner and being confirmed as the nominee, or the period from nominee to general election? We can do them both. Uh, I would imagine. I mean, the, the one important difference I think it's it's worth bearing in mind between the the democratic process and the republican process is that the democratic process allocates delegates in a much more proportional fashion. Uh, so unless uh, Sanders became uh, a very big front runner pretty early, which at this stage at least seems unlikely, uh, the chances of him winning an absolute delegate majority wouldn't become above 50% for quite a long way in the process, you know, like we saw in 2008, for example. So I don't think democratic elites who have for various rather diverse different sets of reasons, uh, uh, either reservations about Sanders or antipathy towards Sanders. I don't see any reason why they would coalesce around Sanders pre-convention if they felt there was a significant non-zero probability that it could be somebody else. Uh, However, post-convention, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't coalesce uh, around Sanders, because once the nominees sort of determined, all of them see a very, very strong interest uh, in unifying against an opponent that, you know, they all uh, share a very, very strong uh, hostility towards. I mean, that's exactly what we saw in 2016 with the Republican uh, process. There were lots of very strong reservations about Trump being raised all the way through up until uh, the convention, even though Trump's status as the nominee was, was confirmed much earlier than would, would would likely be the case with with Sanders, but all those reservations vanished once you got into the general election uh, stretch. So I'd expect a similar dynamic here, but with concern about Sanders being stretched out even longer because there would be at least some chance of it of it going to somebody else. I just want to piggyback on that because I'm looking at the uh, Nate Silver's estimations for those 89 potential scenarios in Iowa, and in all the cases where Bernie Sanders comes up on top in the first position. He's estimated to his chances of winning the nomination are over 50%. And if he's followed by Buttigieg, it's uh, roughly 60% in, yeah, in that's, those scenarios. That's, that's at the end of all the primaries. That's my point. It's a long, drawn-out sequence. Like, you know, he's probably got around a 50-60% chance of eventually getting to a majority of delegates, but that will be a long process. And that means all the way through, there's a non-zero chance uh, of somebody else overtaking him or of a brokered convention. Silver himself has been talking today about how a fragmented and messy Iowa process is going to increase the chances of a brokered convention because candidates will take longer to drop out. And that's where the proportional aspect uh, in the Democrats' process becomes more and more significant. Because just as a thought experiment, imagine both Judge and uh, Warren carry on and imagine that in a whole bunch of states they pick up delegates. You know, they get around about 15, 20%. They're well behind the front two. You know, they, they vary in which one gets them. You could easily get a situation where Sanders is an out-and-out front runner, has like 40, 45% of delegates, but is short of a majority of delegates. And that could be a whole hot mess. And even if that is definitely not the likeliest scenario, uh, it would be a live scenario for a long time before Sanders officially clinched uh, the delegates uh, necessary to have a majority at the convention. Yeah, uh, journalists in the United States have always been talking about the legendary potential uh, broker convention in, uh, for the Republicans or for the Democrats, especially in 2016 with the Republicans and when Donald Trump got uh, got nominated. I'm a little bit more skeptical, even more than Nate Silver on this situation, because I think that the eventual front runner and the person with the plurality of the delegates I think will eventually carry that wave all the way to the convention with with the majority. I I, I just I'm too skeptical about a broker convention personally, based on uh, especially the experience of 2016 with the Republican side. Yeah, I mean, look, even if Sanders had only a plurality, not a majority, I'd be completely with you in that I think it's very unlikely that uh, a convention would overturn the clearly expressed will of all the various primaries. My, my point was simply directly to your question, which is, would the rest of the party elite unify behind him uh, early in that scenario? I don't think they would. I think they would eventually, uh, but I don't think they would have any intention or incentive to do so early. Yeah, I totally agree.
I think something to watch as well is how uh, the supporters of the various candidates react to to not just this non-result or bizarre result, but also how they respond to uh, the actual process throughout the, the next you know, the big, the end of the big four and then going into Super Tuesday and everything, because you have very different types of people falling under different candidates. The, uh, there was something interesting the other day that showed uh, 0% of, of Elizabeth Warren supporters said that they wouldn't support the ultimate Democratic nominee. So every single person who responded to that poll, but you know, approximately 0% of her supporters said, you know what, if it's not her, I'm not supporting anyone. They're, they all would fall in line behind the Democrat who's nominated. But when it comes to Sanders, it was something like 40% of his supporters said that they wouldn't. And that's, that might be a little bit of a hangover from 2016. I definitely think that, you know, that, that figure probably has some, um, some people who have, there's some longevity behind that attitude, behind that feeling. Um, but also there's, there's a particular type of ideological, um, person who's being attracted to, to Bernie Sanders, who isn't going to be as neatly, uh, aligned with or realigned with one of the other candidates if they're the ultimate nominee. So, um, just to intervene, um, we've got so many things to say, but we're awfully late. Um, so shall we move on to the Labour leadership election? And given that we have been so extensive about process with um, the Democratic primaries, um, maybe I thought, Rob, you could go into um, where we are in the Labour leadership election, how they work, and how the difference in the process affect these races, for example, in comparison with the Dem primaries, which are, you know, this long-drawn process with... Um, very large selectorate, etc. Right. Well, I mean, L Labour's process has its own kind of um, baroque uh, elements uh, that they're rather different. So, the, the Labour process involves several different selectorates, uh, and the the final selectorate is the Labour membership. Um, but uh, both the Labour MPs and Labour-affiliated groups, which is unions, constituency parties, other groups officially affiliated to the Labour Party, all play a role. Essentially, to run, you have to secure the support of, if memory serves me right, 5% of current Labour MPs plus uh, some increment that I cannot remember uh, of uh, either constituency Labour parties or of affiliated groups. Uh, now, that particular mix of ingredients in terms of how to run was the subject of pretty intensive internal party battles uh, all the way through Corbyn's leadership of the party, uh, because in particular, the hurdle you had to clear amongst MPs used to be a lot higher than that. Uh, and the concern that the uh, Corbyn uh, sort of uh, leadership team had was that that would pre prevent candidates from the radical left being able to, to get onto the ballot, even though they would be popular with members. So they looked to lower that threshold. Um, but in a classic example of, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, sectoral power politics within a party, uh, the unions who have very significant power in the Labour Party as well, that their side of the bargain was they wanted to ensure that the union voice was very strong, which is why your alternative route to getting on the ballot uh, is to secure support from the big unions. The upshot of all of this is uh, that we're likely to end up with a, a three-horse race uh, between uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, who is, uh, while not the officially approved candidate of Jeremy Corbyn, is widely regarded as the kind of continuity Corbyn project uh, candidate. Uh, Keir Starmer, uh, who was the Brexit secretary uh, for much of the past few years, uh, and it seems to have positioned himself as a man who's acceptable to the Corbyn left, but not of the Corbyn left. Uh, and Lisa Nandy, uh, who has worked very hard to sort of distance herself from the right of the party. She also comes from the sort of broadly left of the party, um, but has been rather more vocally critical uh, of the Corbyn project uh, and the, the 2019 uh, election result. Uh, we, there were a couple of other candidates who looked to stand. Jess Phillips, who was 
was much more the candidate of the right. Uh, she blew up fairly quickly, couldn't get the necessary uh, support uh, and withdrew. Uh, and Emily Thornberry, who is still at the time that we're talking, I believe theoretically a live candidate, but in order to get on the ballot, she's going to need the support of about 35 constituency Labour Party. And I think at the time of speaking, she doesn't yet even have 10 and more than half of them have uh, announced their support. Uh, so it looks likely she'll drop off. And that's quite a surprise because as recently as a year ago, she's shadow foreign secretary. She was regarded as a front runner. So um, in terms of the three main candidates that um, Rob talked about, what is the diagnosis of the defeat in 2019, which was the worst defeat since 1935, and of the Corbyn leadership? And how are they positioning themselves uh, with respect to that defeat? Because it, it seems like, again, electability uh, comes back here, and a lot of uh, what Labour member wants what Labour members want uh, from this candidate is a theory of change that justifies why Corbyn lost and what to do differently. Um, are any of them convincing? Maybe we can go Denise and then Rob on this? Well, to, to draw a slight comparison with the, the current primary, um, I, I mean, I'd say contrast, actually, rather than comparison, the what strikes me about the Labour contest at the moment is that they're struggling. They all are under the same pressure and struggling with this pressure to either distance themselves from what hasn't worked clearly, um, distance themselves from, from the worst result for the Labour Party in decades and decades, uh, while also not completely alienating the, the base of the electorate who they're, they're pitching to, um, who, who are primarily Corbyn supporters, who, who, who primarily ascribe to Corbynism. And so there's this weird push and pull where they both are pushing themselves to um, be radically different from what has, what has been done while also not completely uh, throwing you know, what has been done under the bus. It's a really difficult thing to do. I think it's, it's relatively impossible. And when you look at the Democratic primary, um, there are similar pushes and pulls, but Trump just creates this completely different dynamic and um, a little bit of distance away from President Obama creates a different dynamic. If you remember at the end of President Obama's um, second term, there was a large section of the left who were not happy with him, who were so, so um, disappointed, sort of disillusioned. They felt like he didn't fulfill the, the promise of his presidency. And yet after you know, a few years of, and not even after a few years of Trump, after the election of Trump, that sort of disappointment waned a bit. And now we basically see a Democratic primary where people don't feel the same need to hold on to the past as much. And the, the labor candidates at the moment, I see them uh, really struggling to not throw Corbyn under the bus, but to not be Corbyn 2.0. I think it's a relatively impossible position that they've been put into. I, I think that the, the, the dilemma for Labour is also um, more acute because of the differences between the, the two electorates. I think Denise is exactly right that there's a kind of primary general dynamic. You've got to run uh, further uh, to the left of the medium voter in a, in a primary in a left-wing party because the, the primary voters are, uh, you know, more hardcore in that regard. But the difference is bigger in Labour because the selectorate is smaller. The Labour membership is far, far smaller than the Democratic primary electorate. And, you know, there's been, Tim Bale has published a lot on this in terms of the party members project. You know, Labour members are not so different from Labour voters on, say, economic issues, but they're hugely different different from the broader Labour electorate, let alone the broader electorate as a whole, the electorate Labour needs to win back uh, on uh, particularly social issues, Brexit and views of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and what you're seeing right now is all three candidates tacking towards the medium preference of a Labour member on all of those issues. So they're downplaying their criticism of Corbyn. They're saying very strident things. You've seen both Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer commit to freedom of movement. If you look at the general election politics of that, that makes no sense at all as a commitment to, to make. It's going to be a big albatross for them with the kind of voters that they claim to want to win back. Uh, and, you know, you're also seeing it on Brexit where there is a general tendency to 
play up uh, the role of Brexit divisions in explaining why Labour did poorly uh, with the kind of subtext of now those are out of the way, we can win these voters back, uh, they're, they're naturally Labour voters, while playing down uh, the role both of Jeremy Corbyn and of these broader structural divisions in identity and values uh, that, you know, played a really big role too in Labour's weak performances lately, but where all Labour members are essentially all on the liberal Remain side. So, you know, there's nothing to be gained and everything to be lost by pointing out those problems to that electorate who really don't want to hear it. Uh, I think that's a perfect segue for the next question about uh, the Labour Party in the post-Brexit context. So according to polls, 70% of Labour members felt that leaving the EU was wrong versus 70% of conservatives who believe that it was the right thing to do. So based on the discourse of Labour leader candidates like Keir Starmer and Rebecca Long-Bailey, do you think that a pro-EU stance might become a core part of the Labour program, or will they adopt a more conciliatory tone to bring back uh, Labour Brexit voters? I think for different reasons, none of the Labour candidates will prioritise getting back into the EU uh, as a short-term project. Um, I think um, for Long Bailey, her focus will be on uh, cementing uh, and expanding the Corbyn project, particularly on things uh, like uh, left-wing economics, state intervention, and so forth. Uh, For Starmer, uh, I think the project, you know, if, if you're Starmer or Nandi, you, you first want to demonstrate that you're more electable than what came before. And I don't see any way in which an active program to relitigate the EU question is going to, to really serve that goal. Uh, I, I think we'll end up with a situation where they all become somewhat EU St. Augustine's, you know, oh, Lord, take me back in, but not yet. I think there's also something that that interesting to keep an eye on. And this is, again, not to be too sympathetic to the, the Labour Party as um, someone, you know, full disclosure, I, I do work for the Lib Dems, but uh, but I am I am fairly sympathetic to their situation. I think this is a really tough time to be having a, a labor leadership contest, particularly because we don't know what the after effects are of um, of Brexit on political identities. So something I'm really interested in keeping an eye on over the next few months and years even, is how that uh, identity as a remainer or as a lever persists or declines and and potentially disappears. Because that was something that um, really erupted and became a very strong, potent identity. Um, Some people would say, and I mean, there's some evidence to this effect, that that identity was stronger than partisan identities. And yet what we saw in the election was that when push came to shove, that partisan identity, or at least an anti-partisan identity, really overruled their their current Brexit identity. So that's something that um, none of the the leader contenders really know whether or not the people who both they're they're pitching to as their members and then the people who they're sort of indirectly at the moment pitching to uh, of their ideal electorate how much they're going to stay identified and unified with the with Brexit and and the side of the spectrum that they've picked on that. Yeah, and I guess um, a lot of this conversation uh, kind of harks back to um, you know the 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 influence of institutional uh, features of how a party is set up on um, the, the actual road of a, of a leadership election. Um, so, for example, whoever comes out of this Labour leadership election will have to deal with the NEC, so the, the national the, the national policy committee that is um, very powerful with a membership that um, um, they have to deal with with the parliamentary party for the next five years. On the other hand, the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party for a short for a short while will have the power to reshape the image of the party. And that kind of suggests to me that because both within the parliamentary party and within the membership and within the NEC and within the constituency Labour parties, the overhang of the Corbyn era are just so overwhelming that a fundamental shift of image, whichever shift of image is required for Labour to win again, is really institutionally not possible and that and i wanted kind of an opinion on this whoever wins 
are they a prime minister in waiting? Can they be a prime minister in waiting when um, essentially it, it looks as though even in terms of their personal characteristics, not, none of them is particularly charismatic or anything, and they're just jockeying for a triangulation between the various um, wings of the Labour Party. They look like transition leaders, they don't look like prime minister in waiting. And do you think that 2024 is a realistic perspective for Labour? Well, should I take that first or do you want to go, Denise? Yeah, I go for it because I, I have a lot of conflicting feelings on it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think the short answer is it's it's impossible to say at the beginning of a four or five year parliament whether Labour will look at the end of it uh, like um, a plausible government in waiting or not, regardless of who they elect as leader, because so much of the answer to that question depends on circumstances that are beyond the Labour Party's uh, control. So just to take Labour history, I mean, these institutional constraints and the limits they put on what Labour leaders can do, they're not new. So both Harold Wilson and Neil Kinnock were both elected as candidates of the left they both played up their loyalties to the left. That, that's forgotten quite often in both cases, that Wilson was seen as an arch-Bevanite and that uh, Kinnock spent most of his early parliamentary career as a very close ally of Michael Foote. Both of them came in retrospect to be seen as people who moderated the party and helped take it on the path back to electability. But one of them actually got to win a bunch of elections and one of them didn't. And one of the key reasons for the difference uh, was that everything blew up uh, for Harold Macmillan with Profumo and everything like that. That was absolutely completely beyond um, Wilson's uh, control. Uh, whereas in Kinnock's case, he faced for most of his time as an opposition leader, uh, a very strong prime minister in Margaret Thatcher. And then the Conservatives, when Thatcher became weak, managed to dispatch her and replace her with somebody else who proved to be uh, very popular uh, with the public at large. Um, so, you know, one got to win and one got to lose. But can you really say which one uh, faced the bigger constraints, which one did a worse job based on that alone? Not really, because it depends what happens. And here's my reason for being a bit more optimistic about the prospects for whoever gets in the leader's office this time. Two reasons, really. Firstly, we know partisanship is much weaker. Uh, now than it was in the 80s or the 60s. Uh, I mean, Denise is right that in the end, uh, anti-partisanship, so to speak, antipathy to Corbyn uh, certainly seems to have kept a lot of uh, conservative Remainers in the fold, for example. Um, but in general, we have a much more volatile electorate. That's not just the product of the last cycle, but it's visible over the last 15 years. So you can get big swings from one election to the, the next. They're more likely now than they used to be. And secondly, we have a very volatile, polarizing prime minister who is prone to doing unpredictable things that can blow up on him and who faces a really divisive political agenda in the form of some of the most radical reforms to our international relations and economic structure uh, seen in the post-war era. Uh, there is a lot of downside there. He's got to walk a very long tightrope that he could very easily fall off and he doesn't look like anybody's idea of a deft acrobat. Uh, so I can see lots of reasons why a Labour leader could end up three or four years from now with a very substantial poll lead, not because they've done anything remarkable or revolutionary re relative to the institutional constraints that they face, but simply by being solid and reliable and not blowing themselves up in any way. Uh, and the, you know, the government's own errors or crises present an opportunity. That's very often how oppositions get in, in fact. I think it's actually harder to kind of present a campaign against Boris Johnson compared to Theresa May. I think Jeremy Corbyn did a good job uh, of that in 2017 because she was very predictable and not very created as a creative as a candidate. Whereas if I were the Labour leader, and whoever gets elected, I'd be very worried about uh, Boris Johnson because he is unpredictable. He is very pragmatic and flexible and kind of Machiavellian, which can have its downsides. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have any confidence in their ability to eventually uh, knock down Boris Johnson. Well, the, the last thing I guess I'll mention, because um, I, I imagine we're coming up towards the end of our time, but the one of the biggest differences between uh, what will be the, the next election um, and, and the most recent period of, of British politics is going to be timing to me. 
So since 2016, arguably since 2015, really, the the electoral system here has been in a really constant state of flux. And there's been so much uncertainty uh, since that time, not just because of Brexit, but also because of this sort of, you know, electoral realignment of attitudes, um, I would say within within some of the parties internally, but also within the electorate, uh, that it's been a very volatile time frame. And coming up, we have four years that are really non-election years whatsoever in the UK. And that has not been the case since after 2010. And so there's a moment of stability, which allows for a different type of political attitude to form. So outside of an election cycle, there's a lot of work that shows that intensity of certain attitudes weakens and that uh, with with intensity weakening, then that basically allows for events or new figures or sort of changes to capture attention and form new uh, new attitudes. And the timing that that could be this is why timing could be on the side of, of labor, that the new leader um, really does have a little bit more of a relaxed schedule in terms of setting up their team and their office, defining their brand, defining what are the things that they're really going to speak out on, who are the groups that they're really going to align themselves with, and doing that in a systematic way over the course of a few years, rather than um, Corbyn or any of the Lib Dem leaders I'll mention as well, you know, just getting kind of going from the going right into the fire right away, not having a moment to define themselves and establish who they are with the electorate. And so we'll see whether or not any of these candidates or or any of these contenders are able to do that as labor leader. I'm reminded of uh, a couple, um, actually Senate candidates I've worked with in the US who at the beginning in the primary, they're, they're, you know, they're basically like dorks who have a really strong sense of public service and over the course of a campaign and even sometimes over the course of a a year or two of service in, in public life really developed into impressive leaders and orators, but it was something that took a lot of time and practice and development and, um, and organization. I mean, really shouldn't underestimate how much the team around these people is very influential in determining what their ability is to communicate with the electorate. And so I'm, I mean, this is not just a selfish perspective as a, as a, you know, political operative and a, and a PhD student. I think we're going to have a little bit more time to evaluate and analyze and research on one side, but we're uh, also on the other side, the, the public figures themselves are going to have more time to define who they are and connect with an electorate if it exists for them. I'm kind of a little bit more de- deterministic and pessimistic on this, and that has to do with, with, with you know, mm. the structure of political competition and with the state of Scotland, but we don't have time for any of this. Um, and so as our time draws to a close, um, let's have a quick round of prediction. You can cop out, but to your eternal shame. So let's maybe go. Uh, let's maybe um, go Rob, Denise, Marco, Nick, and then me. Uh, so who's gonna lead, Who's gonna win uh, the Democratic primaries, and who's gonna win uh, the Labour leadership election? Not Joe Biden. That's my two cents. Uh, you see, I'm I'm just going to lean on the on the polling, um, and I'm going to go Biden and um, Starmer, uh, and I don't think Biden will run away with it. I think it'll be a long process, and I wouldn't at all be surprised by a Sanders victory. If it's not Biden, I think it will be Sanders. Um, but I think Biden still has, you know, he's like Romney in 2012. Everyone keeps underestimating how valuable. Uh, even a weak front-runner position is if you've got a fragmented field. And I think that's going to play to his advantage down the stretch. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to absolutely cop out on the U.S. presidential question. And I'll, I'll use a, a really annoying cop-out, too. I'm, I'm far too biased. I, I know Pete Buttigieg personally. I lived in South Bend when he was elected mayor. And so I couldn't possibly have an unbiased prediction. Um, but I also think that we're in a situation in the U.S. where if you, if, if you find anyone 
who, uh, who, who's very confident that they know what's going to happen, then you can be very confident that they don't know what's going on. So I should so be clear, I'm not confident about my prediction. Right. No, I, I, I definitely gave you that credit for sure. Um, so, so there's, there's my cop out very upfront. And then in terms of the labor leadership, I, I am, uh, pretty trusting of the polling that's out there. I will say, I think that Keir Summer is definitely in the best position and I'll put, I'll put, I'd put money on him, I'd guess. Yeah, so for me, I'm with you guys on Starmer. Um, for the U.S., um, my gut says Biden will win. However, I would rather Warren win. And that's me being biased because I'm from Massachusetts. So I'll conclude by going out on Lynn and saying I that... Wanna, I just want to add one last thing. If we're going to go with biases, I think Andrew Yang is going to win. Oh, no. I don't genuinely think that's going to happen, but maybe in a, in a super uber biased way. I, I hope slash think it will happen, but uh, definitely staying, sticking with Joe Biden, I think, will implode. Um, I'm, I was going to go out on a limb and say that it's going to be... Uh, Sanders in America and probably Starmer in the UK and that's all we got time for thank you very much Denise thank you thanks for having me and thank you Rob thank you it was a pleasure really enjoyed it and that's a wrap for today where your hosts Nick Marco and Leo were of course not sponsored by anyone except for listeners like you you can find us on our website eurocaststocks.com on our twitter at eurocast underscore ox and you can follow our guests Rob at Rob Ford, M-A-N-C-S, Rob Ford Manx, as in Manchester, and Denise at Baron Denise. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please donate to our Patreon and take a bit out of your time to spread the word. Until next time.